It's reading from Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do they not call upon the Lord? There are there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The word of the Lord. The kids are invited to kids' church this morning. says in his heart there is no God the fool says in his heart there is no God it's the opening words of the psalm that we have this morning before I really dive in there's sort of uh, two thoughts that sort of guide this sermon one is this idea that the, the fool doesn't say from the university campus stage there is no God the fool is not uh, Richard Dawkins, not to pick on Richard Dawkins, but um, famous atheist out of Britain. It's not somebody who goes on news TV and says there is no God. But the fool is the one whom in their heart they say there is no God. And that changes things quite a bit. I think it actually changes it from this idea of asking people do they believe in God to asking ourselves do we believe in God in our heart? Or is it that I confess with my mouth, but then make plans, look at others, live a life in which it says that this has not taken root in my heart? That's a question that, that this psalm sort of raises here at the beginning, is, is that the fool is this one who says in their heart, there is no God. But the second thing is, is, is I spent the week thinking about um, atheism in this sort of psalm, is that there's idea contained within this psalm is that the fool then um, sows a life of corruption and destruction and unhinged sort of consumption of other people and other things. This is why it is the poor who find their refuge in God in the end. They are those whom have nothing else. And so the fool, as he says in his heart, there is no God, is one who is able to sort of go out and um, be free. And that's an odd phrase. Because we are people who love to be free. And this psalm 
The fool says in his heart there is no God. What he finds in that instance is the sense of ultimate freedom. To be able to go forth with no chain on their actions, no script to follow, no holy or um, even unholy life to live. They get to be their own God in some sense. And this is what the psalmist is talking about for this morning. Is that is there's this way in which we can sort of unhook ourselves from the reality as we know it. Eugene Peterson, we've been talking about as he's sort of picked the psalms for us. He has the title for this psalm. They're all un-something. Um, this one is unself, um, unself-righteousness. Unself-righteousness. What happened as I first read the psalm this, this week or last week was I heard in it this call both for the, um, for lack of a better term, either the conservative or progressive liberal Christian, to find self-righteousness within it. They're all fools. They say there is no God. Becomes this way and sort of some of us, myself included, can begin to think that, that hey, what is wrong with people who say there is no God? I've got something. I don't have a lot right, but at least I have that right. And we build up our own self-righteousness in that way. Towards the end of the psalm, there's this idea in which that, that the ones, as God looks out on creation and sees corruption and ruins, the one who, who is able to sort of stand in that place and finds refuge in God is the poor. A certain group of Christian that then would weaponize that. To say that I, 21st century, uh, predominantly white, um, middle-class American, have in my mind expressed solidarity with the poor. Therefore, I can judge others that say there is no God. So what we find in both those polls, the one that we can say, uh, the atheist, how, how dense they can be, or that I find my own comfort in my own self-identification largely disembodied with right opinions about the poor, therefore how foolish other people are, is the missing of the point of the psalm. It's a psalm that raises questions for us as we think in ourselves. The fool, and, and the, the fool here in, in Hebrew um, is not per se, the, the idiot or this, that, and the other. It's if, as we went through Lism literature, it's one who's contrasted with the wise. So if we learn in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this psalm traces the opposite. There is no fear of the Lord, and it is the beginning of sown destruction. What it proclaims for us in a weird way, this psalm, is that things are not as they seem. What looks like the right way to live your life, the foolish, there is no God, that I can be free to pursue my own path to my own human flourishing, is actually the wrong path. And the path that finds itself with no other place for security other than to have a refuge in God is actually the right path to be on. Or in the biblical imagination, the foolish and wise path. There's the foolish person who says he can build up more and more and more 
Yet it's the wise person who relies on something outside of themselves, who finds themselves drawn into God in some ways. So we're going to walk through the psalm this morning with some of those questions on our minds um, and, and try to figure out what it is that this meaning that the fool says in their heart, there is no God. What does that mean for us? One of the things to start with, too, um, first off, this is a confession of, of what many people in the um, reading the psalm can call practical atheism. It's not the atheism that says, like Richard Dawkins or anybody else from the start, but it's the sense in which God is fine, but I should be able to free to go the directions I want to go. Or Alistair McIntyre summed, summed up this person's creed as, there is no God, but it's good to pray every now and then, which I thought was quite funny. Get your bases covered. Um, there is no God, but you might want to pretend like there is at certain times. Um, and so it's this sort of practical way of sort of narrating and guiding your life. It's to say, um, functionally, there, there may or may not be a God that I assent to with my mouth or that I go to church. And this is, I think, one that is challenging for the Israelite and the synagogue and the Christian in the church is that I go and perform these actions. But as I go out, I say in my heart, there is no God. And it's a challenge, I think, that that calls us to, to looking at ourselves. But the second thing for me was, I think in the church, I see a lot of functional atheism. I believe in God, but I don't go forth um, sowing destruction. I go forth making sure that the reality of God is manifest in the world because I'm not sure it is if I don't do that. The famous Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper, who said there is, there is not one square inch of the world that God does not say mine over. It's a great quote. Um, but there was a different theologian who pointed out that, that it's one thing to say that, and it's one thing to only believe that when, in, in the case of Kuyper and many of the people at that time, that if the Dutch flag was over that place in the world. It was, it was the sense in which everywhere in creation there is, belongs to God, and yet we need to make sure that it belongs to God, and in that time of colonialism it meant that your flag was over it. So the functional sort of disconnect there is that it is all God's, but we need to make sure that it's aware that it's all God's. And so we see this temptation in the, in the American scene. You know, all of this is God's, but I, I have um, anxiety, and there, there's some wisdom in this. this. isn't to say this is all a dumb idea, but I have a lot of anxiety that but we need to make sure people know it's God's. Um, we need to make sure it belongs to God. Um, our money famously says in it, in God we trust. And if people were to get rid of that, we would wonder what would happen to us as if it hasn't been revealed enough already. But the, the bigger point is, is that we have the sense in which it already is God's. We have to function as such. There's another way in which the functional atheism shows up in what I call often the busiest of the church or the busyness of the Christian. God is going to set all things to right in the fullness of time. But in the meantime, I need to make sure I'm doing everything to build that kingdom here immediately. It's a lack of trust of what's coming. It's this bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. 
um, uh, or at least look like you're doing the things he would want you to do. Um, and so there's this way in which that to trust in the providence of God's care in nearness to creation and that God is the one who brings about this kingdom and this way of life on earth means to free us in some ways. And I think that is the properly non-anxious Christian life that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. A kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not, we build your kingdom here as fast as we can so that it can be the place that it is in heaven. And so I, I don't know if I'm art articulating this one well, but the idea is, is that we have this way in certain Christian ways of being that sort of suggest we really need to be making this world because we're not sure God's going to make it. And that pushes us into, um, I think, an anxiety that also doesn't make us that helpful either. Um, when we come out of those places and spaces, we come with news that might not be as celebratory as we think it is. The last one that I, I was thinking about as I thought about this, um, and this is perhaps one of the more important ones, and it, it connects to the, the reading that Brian, uh, no, Brian, you read Romans, that Shelley read to us from the book of Matthew, that short parable from Matthew 13 that Jesus explains later if you want to find the longer reference for it. But um, is this notion that, and I've, I've said this, I think, here, is that Christians will talk about that they're in the world today. There are people who want the kingdom of God, but they do not want the king. What they say is there are people who want justice, goodness, clean water for all. Um, uh, the beloved community, as Martin Luther King talked about it, um, these sort of things, but they do not want Jesus. They want, in some sense, to see a picture of a good ethical life but they don't want the one whom embodied that life. They don't want the king. Now, it's a nice slogan. I, I think one of the um, hallmarks of, that could improve my preaching is using more slogans. Um, uh, at least my friends would say, there's nothing memorable in what you say. It might be good, but you need to condense it to a tweetable length, to which I say, uh, get behind me, Satan, in Jesus' phrase. Um, uh, a little inside baseball. Anyways, um, that phrase, I think, makes sense to a lot of Christians. And what I was thinking about this week, and I talked about it with Kim, actually, um, on Tuesday, was I, I'm not sure it should. It's not the compliment we think it is. And so what we've managed to do even if that phrase makes sense to us. Like, I heard that phrase, I go, yeah, that makes sense. Amen, brother, keep telling me something. Um, which I never talk like that. Um, but if, if it makes sense to me, I'm sort of participating in the divide between the one who embodies that way and the ethic that flows out of it. And I think what we find in the modern world is that... Um, we might be complimenting they want the kingdom without the king far too much. The world often might mean by justice. Sometimes you scratch the surface and is driven by resentment and anger. That's not wanting the kingdom without the king. That's wanting a different kind of kingdom. It's wanting something entirely different. 
wanting the kingdom without the king. And, and this is where it connects to what Shelley read to us, is that that psalm is crazy because the field is the world in, in Matthew 13. What, what Jesus is describing is the world, and this Lord goes out and he sprinkles seed in it and some weeds grow up in it. And the, the harvesters come to him and they say, oh, there's weeds in, in, the, in the field. Um, and the, 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 the master of the farm says, an enemy must have done this. So shall we go forth and rip up the weeds? And the master of the farm says, no, because you'll disturb the good things as well as the bad things. What's so interesting in the interpretation that Jesus provides in Matthew 13 for that psalm is he says very directly that the um, field is the world. It's not the church. It's not something else. So to let bad things grow up in the world is the patience of God. And the harvesters, which always blows my mind, are the angels. Angels, it is said, cannot properly uproot um, bad things without disturbing good things. How is this connected to the kingdom without the kingdom? Many stories about the kingdom today, if you're believing that statement, find confidence within humanity to be able to rid the world from evil people and evil things. So the patience that comes living with that king is not evident in this they want the kingdom without the king. Um, I've used this phrase before, but it's apt for here um, from Solzhenitsyn, is that it's, it would be only thi w something if evil was out there someplace where we could just go destroy it, but the line between good and evil runs in between every human heart, and he who wishes to rid the world of evil must be willing to destroy part of himself. The kingdom without the king, as we give into that logic, which, like I said, I've said it before, but as I thought through this psalm, raises these questions about what is the nature of this kingdom. We can trade slogans, human flourishing, happiness, this, that, and the other, but um, definitions matter to some extent. And to not just say definitions matter, but if you look at the Christian life, devotion matters. See, that's the thing, is we divide the ethic from the kingdom is to say, to be able to sit in devotion to quote-unquote waste time in prayer becomes something that makes no sense. Prayer is time you could spend performing some sort of action that brings this course into being. So we've divided that in some ways, and I think it's connected to this sort of psalm in a way, because the fool says in their heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. When we say they want the kingdom without the king, we kind of say, though they say in their heart there is no God, they do good, and life flourishes. We, we sort of baptize the vision of the world abstracted from God. We say that, look, you've got the ethic don't you want the one who reveals? Now, as I tell many other pastors, um, you have the ethic. Would you like to spend an hour and a half on Sunday morning, and you could be doing something else in our area, enjoying the great outdoors or watching an NFL game, 
going to worship this one. I don't think it's the selling point we think it is. Um, at home, there's better coffee. Um, well, the coffee's good here, but um, <laughs> at home, there's better coffee. At home, I can choose what I consume and entertain. At home, I do not have to bump into people that are not people I've chosen. Like, what is this thing about joining this king um, that means I have to join in with other people? Now, for me, there was, uh, despite my struggles with the PowerPoint this morning, there was great joy in hearing the children sing behind me. But even then, you've got the ethic. Wouldn't you like to come and hear Pastor Matt sing out of tune? Um, See, this, this, this divide that we've allowed to take place when we think of an ethic devoid of the character and marker of who Jesus is. And like I said, I think if we but scratch the surface of much of these movements, it's often that something vile comes out. Um, of all places, there's a porta pod in Carbondale, um, Colorado, I've, I've said this before, that says, eat the rich in it. Who do you think you're talking about? Um, just the people up valley from me. Everybody down valley, you're cool. Um, uh, and yet, you would say, well, they want an ethic of radical redistribution of wealth, maybe, or something like that. And yet, often, just barely underneath the surface, there's something that is resentful, something that is governed by what, what, uh, the reason why I picked that that um, Matthew 13 story, that I can go forth and rid the world of evil. That my, in my righteousness, because now the church has even told me I want the kingdom, I can go forward as an ambassador of justice devoid from the king, knowing that with my own violence, my own words, my own disruption to my family and my life, I can do that because I'm fully on the good side. Which raises us to the second part of this psalm. The Lord looks down from, han, uh, from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. <laughs> the, the Hebrew for all mankind means all people. <laughs> it means all mankind. It's, it's, it's this thing in which we might think we're exempt. The Lord looks down from hev heaven on everyone to see if there are anyone who would seek God. And what it says, we have to hear this. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one who does good, not even one. Now this is... Um, a state about the world in which the psalmist is writing in. Although through um, Brian now, I keep looking this way for Matthew, but now I've got it right. What Brian read from what Paul takes from Romans 3, he takes this portion of this passage and he suggests that all of us are bound in this web too. He doesn't provide exemption either. And one of the easiest phrases I think to remember is, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's interesting in the book of Romans, where we started that passage to today, is he's initially writing to a lot of Israelite culture that thinks that they have a leg up on the rest of culture. They think, well, you know, certainly we can accept the Gentile, 
the outsider, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what Paul does through the first, uh, from Romans 1, 18, basically all the way through Romans 3, although basically throughout the whole argument of Romans, is he sort of is trying to display to those who are on the inside of, of this culture already, shall we boast? Are we ahead in this? Or is what God revealed in Jesus Christ for all people replacing them from where they were because for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that phrase, which is too easy to remember, and it's one in which I think I can build my own self-righteousness upon, at least I'm aware all have fallen shins. <laughs> um, you can, I mean, maybe it's just me, but there are many things I could build my own self-righteousness upon in which, like, they're bad things, but at least I got it. Um, like this one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In my own corrupt imagination, I could become like, see, at least I know that. Um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God proclaims that all of your self-delusions to your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own way of setting the world right, all of those practices and ways in which you've tried to do this, fall short. And what God has done in Jesus Christ is provided a way and a path for us to move into a new life. And yet Paul's language for this will be only as gift. Only as gift. You do not control this. It does not come from your own goodness of heart. It is something that comes from outside of you. Brings us to the next portion of the psalm today. Um, yeah, sorry, that, the Romans phrase was up here, uh, but I did not put it up. That all falls short. And, and, and you'll notice he'll say, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been named. No, this is that thing I'm saying. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile um, is what he lays in there. Again, we as Christians sometimes, you could read that as there is no difference between Christian and pagan. There is no difference between Christian and their neighbor. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet it is God's pathway that becomes known to us that provides the way for a different kind of life that is not under our own control. You frustrate the plans. I think I skipped a passage. Do these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as they devour bread. They never call on the Lord, but they are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. I think it was Eugene Peterson who said that these people, um, instead of praying, they pray, P-R-E-Y. See, I got a slogan in there. Um, uh, they prey on others and other things. They consume. And it's not only um, that, and, and that ethic, that life I, that Matthew talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is one in which it says um, that if you but look at a woman lustfully, or if you say of somebody in your heart, you fool, raka, which is more than just what the psalmist used, but more this idea of, of you idiot, you've committed murder, or you've consumed their body through your eyes. People that though they um, devour my people as though eating bread, they never call on the Lord. 
But there they are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. Now this is a tension that I think um, we keep alive in the psalm. Because the psalm already said, God looks out of all humankind, and no one desires a way. And yet what I think in using the righteous, or in the next passage, um, uh, it'll be poor. You frustrate the plans of the poor, but their Lord is the refuge. Is to say, for those who have come to accept, they have no reality by which they can save themselves. They have no place in which they can build up a refuge strong enough to withstand um, that consuming desire that lives with all and all of us, that we throw ourselves but on the grace of God. They move into this place. And I just want to make one... It's an observation. I don't know where to put it often. Um... But this idea of poor, there's this little phrase from Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy where he says that Tolstoy was converted amongst the poor. If you're familiar with the story of Tolstoy, is what happens is he's sort of a wealthy aristocrat. The story is told in the book Anna Karina, if you have time to read 900 pages. Um, and if you're planning on doing it, spoiler alert, I guess. Um, uh, but... Um, he finds himself sort of laboring with the poor one day because of something that happened on the farm. And what he finds among the poor is a different way of being. All the politics and things that governed his political life and aspirations and stuff like that, they didn't worry about. And they had this way of sort of being with the land and being with their families and being connected intimately together that he then wanted to participate in that. Now this sort of mm, sows some disruption in Tolstoy's life further on, but what he found there was sort of genuine human community. Or in this way, um, people say that for the Christian, the poor are not a problem to be solved, but a people to join. Matthew says, or Jesus says at the beginning of Matthew's Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or Luke drops spirit and just said, blessed are the poor. They are not a people to be solved, but a people to join. The first thing to say about that is we so often treat them as a people to be solved. I think I've told this story before, but when I started working among the homeless, I thought, wouldn't it be great if you guys had cell phone bills and housing payments and car payments? Like, my goal for you is to live my type of, like, empty, worried life that can sit on, um, watch whatever the latest show is on Netflix. Like, wouldn't that be better for you? Um, which shows you how corrupt, I mean, I look bad, I understand that. And yet, as I took many people to work with the poor while I was doing that, that was often the time that they would come and say, how quick can we get wins here? This is much, much harder than you think, one. Two, you might want to rethink of your definition of what win is. Is your life the one that you want to share? But going back to Willard's quote, he finishes that quote. Is he says, the problem today is that we don't have any poor left because they all have cable. The book was written, I think, 1996. You could say today because they all have smartphones. Because they're all dealing with the same pressures. that. So when Tolstoy left the palace life, 
when he left the lower upper middle class, wherever he was in this, that world, and went among the poor, he found people who weren't captured by the same things. The deep challenge today that I think Willard names well is where is it we find people who aren't captured by the same sorts of emptiness we ourselves are? I think, despite all appearances, perhaps the hope for that today might be the church. The poor aren't a people to be solved, but a people to join. We're witness of God reconciling all things to himself. Can we be the people who let go? And it's hard, I, I think, because Tolstoy had a witness. Um, he had the poor. Today, it's hard to find those people who, um, whether you want to say are fierce with reality is a phrase I use, who reclaim the real, which is from the Matthew Crawford book we're doing, or those who redeem the time for the days are evil in the words of Paul. It's hard to find that today. Yet it is in that, and it's in surrender, that the Lord becomes their refuge. Lord, it's the refuge when you let go of all the other things. The psalm ends with this hope for all people, which is weird. Many of the commentators point out that, that it's sort of this lament through it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, fool in Hebrew means collapse, by the way. The, the fool says in his heart, I'll live by my own script. I'll go my own way. I'll be a rule unto myself. There's nobody righteous, no, not one, uh, Paul, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet there are people who find a refuge in God. And what the psalm ends is hope for the world and hope for all. Oh, that salvation, oh, that rescue would come out of Zion. Oh, that that would be there when the Lord restores his people. We... Um, I don't want us to hear in whatever uh, challenge I gave us in becoming those people, uh, get busy for Jesus is coming. Um, because it is the Lord who restores his people. The Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This hopefulness that ends the psalm and that day is coming. Let us pray. The psalmist proclaims for us today, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God, we come and we worship. We hear your word. We proclaim and give honor to your name here. We receive the gift of your body and blood in communion. And yet, Lord, we, I think, can feel that we say at times in our heart as we go forth, there is no God. Better to trust in my own conceptions of justice. Better to trust in my own conceptions of human flourishing. Better to trust in the life I would design for myself than the one you have designed for me. God, call us near to you. 
Call us to finding a refuge in you. Call us to abandon the claims to self-righteousness and holiness in ourselves, but to find ourselves clinging to you, of being near to you. For it is your Son who comes forth from Zion, your Son Jesus Christ who is the gift in which all of us who have fallen short can find life again. It is a gift you give freely, and it is a gift we can learn and be engrafted into. Make us the people of your peace. Yes, this, and then the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.